Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Check us out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me, I'm Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. Check us out on Spotify. I know that's bad right now, but we're still on there. Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. Oh, and we're on Google. So you can check some places out, um, the shows there, if you miss something or you come in the middle and you think, oh, my God, what did they say in the first 10 minutes? No worries. All the shows are archived. This morning, I have a guest. He's been on here before, and we were talking about another one of his books called The Cosmopolitan Canopy. He is the Sterling Professor of Sociology and of African American Studies at Yale University and one of the leading urban ethnographers in the United States. His publications include Code of the Street, Decency, Violence, and the Moral Life of the Inner City, winner of the Komarovsky Award from Eastern Sociological Society, Streetwise, Race, Class, and Change in the Urban Community, winner of the American Sociological Association. Robert E. Park Award for the best published book in the area of urban sociology. And I can go on. He has several other books. Like I said, he was on here and we spoke about the cosmopolitan canopy before. And his name is Dr. Elijah Anderson. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on again. Today we're going to be talking about this other book. It's called Black and White Faith. Now, What's new? What's going on? Why now? Why are you writing about black and white space? Is, that, is there something new that we don't know about? Can you talk to us about this white space and also you talk about a deep white space? Yes, yes. Well, I've, I've been very concerned about this issue since I began my work, and many of my works uh, are uh, works that really focus on the, the um, issue of systemic racism and the ways in which race works in society. All my books, beginning with a place on the corner where I hung out for three years on one street corner in Chicago and wrote a place on the corner, and the second one was Streetwise and then Code of the Street and then The Canopy. And now this, this book, and each of these books can be considered a kind of a chapter in my body of work that gives a, a picture, an ethnographic picture, of the way that race works in American society. And this is like chapter five, in a sense. But it's an independent book, of course. But I deal with the issue of how black people deal with um, uh, white space. And uh, a lot has happened over the years, of course, since, uh, since slavery. Slavery itself um, established the black body at the bottom of the order. And since that time, black people have been trying to get full citizenship, so to speak, to be treated equally. Um, uh, in American society, which has been a real, real challenge. As many mm. 
as, a, as readers, the, uh, the civil rights was basically, I mean, the civil rights movement was basically a status protest movement for full citizenship and equality. And uh, black people still haven't achieved it, but we've made a lot of, uh, a lot of strides in the right direction. Now, what about this deep white space? That was something I hadn't heard that phrase before. Tell, tell the audience what that means compared to just white space. Well, I mean, basically, white space is, um, is, uh, is a perceptual category. And white space is a space that is predominantly white and controlled uh, by people who are assumed to be white. And uh, in another term for it uh, is a civil society or what black people deal with all the time, other minorities as well. Um, but um, deep white space is a space where there are just no black people. And uh, a black person there uh, may be the only one. And so in that, in that kind of situation, a black person is especially a needy of support and help typically, and he or she looks for it. When uh, you see another black person, even though you don't know that person, you may nod, you may smile, you may wink, you know, that kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. you, you know that you're in that space together. And um, a black person in that space also looks for allies among white people who give them a nod or a wink, you see. Uh, knowing, you're saying that, you know, I know, I know what you're up against, if you know what I mean. And other minorities, too, you see. But deep white space is a space that is, uh, could be a completely white organization, could be, um, be a university, could be a school, could be a neighborhood. Uh, it could be upstate New York, upstate Pennsylvania, upstate uh, uh, Maine, where the white people settle, and there are no black people. So if you wander into that place, you uh, you feel very much alone and uh, and and sort of help. Now you just mentioned the nod. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to say? As a black person, you may feel especially in need of help, so to speak, short of help. Yes. So you mentioned this nod, and I can tell you, I've used the nod or the glance uh, not just in the United States, but outside of the United States, where I might have been in a a white, I would say, deep white space. Um, say like I was in Poland <laughs> that I consider that a deep white space and you, you see somebody or I remember being in Italy uh, and, and, and also when I would see a black person to be like oh yeah hey like you know I don't know them but it is a very comforting thing and, and it does happen and, and people have done it to me as well to you know say oh, okay I see you uh, another black person now you talk about the workspace and black people and, and white space. Yeah. In that space, though, sometimes we don't know who our allies are. Like, we could go to lunch with somebody, but we're not going home and we're not having dinner. How can you tell, how do you know who, who the white ally is? Yeah, well, that's, that's, somewhat, that's somewhat difficult to know. You know by the, by, by the, by the, by the nod, maybe. You know by the wink. You know, by the extra help this person uh, provides uh, you, uh, I mean, to make you feel comfortable, uh, and that's usually some kind of a tip-off. When a, when a white person extends himself above and beyond the call of duty, it's like a, like a tip-off, you see. And you mm-hmm. see, on white people, there are people who are, who are quote-unquote, regular white people who basically know very little about black people. And then there are white people who are wise, 
And to be wise is to be empathetic, to know what a black person is going through, you see. And, yes. and, and many white people don't have any clue uh, as to what black people go through in white space. But a, black, but a white person who has a black child, uh, a, a, a white person who has a black spouse, a white person who uh, has people oftentimes have a sense, they're, they're kind of edified about the issues that black people face uh, as they go through life. Many white people, probably most white people, have no idea, and they, they think that black people basically have the same opportunities, the same orientation, the same values they have. And often they do, but there's an extra, there's an extra tax, the black tax, that black people know they pay in society. And the white people who uh, befriend black people and extend help, they know that black people pay this black tax as well. Yes, you talk about the Jewish um, people and their relationships uh, with African Americans in, in a certain time in history because they had been persecuted, so they felt they somehow to some degree understood so there were a lot of Jewish allies uh, in, the, in the civil rights movement. Um, but yeah. go ahead. So, I mean, this is very true. And, um, and uh, uh, because of the European... Uh, uh, issues uh, that Jews face. I mean, I mean, a lot of uh, American Jews are empathetic, you know, to what Black people are going through and can and can sympathize and empathize and even support. And during the Civil Rights Movement, there was a significant number of Jewish people who did reach out. And oftentimes, um, uh, in these corporations, in these uh, universities, what you what you find sometimes are the people who mentor. Uh, you know, black people are oftentimes Jewish, and this is not to say that other whites don't do it, but but there's uh, in many of my uh, uh, interviews, people have noted that uh, this Jewish fellow reached out to him and gave him support when other whites in the company were not even concerned about his uh, situation. So that's an interesting observation, and much of my work. Uh, is uh, is based on interviews and observations that I've been able to make in white space and other spaces in the city of Philadelphia. Now, did you hear recently that uh, Whoopi Goldberg was talking about the Holocaust and um, that it, it didn't have anything to do with race, um, but then she apologized? What is your opinion, or do you feel comfortable giving your opinion, was the Holocaust about race or not, for no, people I who may not... Uh, understand the Holocaust? Yeah, well, well, there are different notions about race, quote-unquote. And in the old days, um, when people said race, they were talking about, you know, the Jewish race, the uh, Irish race, the Italian race, uh, the black race. And so race was just another way to speak about ethnicity, in a sense, or these divisions that people have between and among themselves, so to speak. And these are, to some extent, socially constructed, as mm -hmm. it were. And I think that may have gotten her in trouble because basically uh, race in the old days was simply a human division that, that administrators uh, made. So to talk about the, the race was a way of speaking about the, uh, the Jewish people or to speak about even the black people or whoever they were with, with respect to these human divisions that administrators uh, made in the old days. So it, it's complicated, but uh, yeah. I sympathize and I, I hope the situation is resolved by now. You um, have this thing, can I help you? But there's some other meaning there. 
Can you explain to the audience what the subtext of Can I Help You means for African Americans? Well, I mean, it means many things, and it certainly depends on the context. But oftentimes, um, black people who, who are navigating white space, uh, say they're in a store or in a, in a play, in a, in, a, in a restaurant or whatever, I mean, uh, uh, people come up right away, can I help you? And they understand from the tone of voice that it isn't always a sincere offer of help, but it's a question about uh, what is your business here? And so black people have, have keen antennae, you see, and they, uh, they have this, and this antennae is on alert in white space, you know. Black mm. people, they navigate white space. Uh, they expect to meet three kinds of white people. They expect to meet uh, white people who mean them well and who may understand. And they expect to meet white people who don't, you see, mean them well. And they expect to meet a wide swath of white people who basically are tolerant towards uh, towards black people and maybe can go either way, you see. Yes. But a people's uh, antennae, black people, it's on high alert because they know that the white space, while it could seem pleasant, uh, can turn hostile in any moment, you see. And that's the, that's the situation that black people live under in American society today. Do you think that black people, I mean, a majority of black people are walking around with like PTSD because of this, because of this hypervigilance that we may have to have when we go out into white space or, or more so into deep white space, say you're working on Wall Street, like one of your characters, uh, Carrie, uh, later on in the book. Do you think we, we have PTSD because of this? Well, some Hyper- people do. Some people mm-hmm. do because the experiences leading up to the PTSD uh, may be different. I mean, the black people as a group, I mean, it's not a monolithic group. You know, yeah. well. I mean, uh, you know, black people used to be ghettoized. I mean, when they left the plantations of the South and went north, you know, they became uh, ghettoized. Their, their stigma followed them and preceded them. And very oftentimes, um, the sun downtown said, keep on going, you see. But mm-hmm. like eventually settled in areas uh, where they became uh, more and more numerous. And, of course, the white population has always tried to concentrate them to keep them in that, in that space. And so black people know that uh, basically uh, uh, there is this problem of stigma with blacks. And they know that they are different in these spaces. And so they walk around uh, waiting for the hammer to drop sometimes. But at the same time, it's important to understand that, that not all blacks come up uh, under oppressive circumstances. There are many black people who are raised and become socialized and reach maturity in spaces that are really, really open and welcoming to them, you see. And then they go out into the world, and then there's the shock of discrimination, you see. Yes. And in, the book, in my book, I talk about, and this is a, a trigger warning, I talk about the end moment, the end moment. And this is a, and this is a new color line in America. It's a moment of acute disrespect based on one's blackness. And it can come out of the blue and hit you and set you back. Uh, you know, the, and the small ones are so many slights that people get all the time. And every group gets, you know, treatment that may mimic the slight or whatever. And uh, these small moments, you say, oh, okay, that's just a matter of living while black. 
And you keep going because you get aggressive because you go crazy trying to address all the fights that happen to you as a black person. But the big yeah, one. Yeah, you, you talk about that, you know, in the workspace in, in particular. Uh, you know, you're trying to maintain your job and take care of your family, and, and, and you don't want to bring up the race card because no. then you're looked at as, you know, the race guy, uh, and and people will treat you differently all of a sudden. And not that they weren't treating you differently already, because that's why you, you made the complaint. But, right. um, you know, let me let me ask you, uh, you had an interesting experience on Amtrak. Oh, go ahead. You were going to say something? Go ahead. Yeah, just to add something here. Because, you know, this little slight, you know, if you, you know, it's just not worth it sometimes to deal with every slight you, you get. You soon go nuts. But the, but the big ones you have to, you have to deal with because, uh, I mean, they're so consequential. They can make you lose your job. They can make you, uh, you know, leave the town. They can, they can get you fired. They can also get you killed, you see. And that's mm-hmm. the big, I just want to uh, uh, talk. Anyway, I discussed this in the book, this moment of acute disrespect based on blackness, and it is, I think, the new American color line. And in the old days, it was, it was bold. You know, people knew just what the line, where the line was, and they knew that they crossed it, they'd have trouble. Today, because of the progress we've made uh, in race relations in terms of civil rights and, and the incorporation process that has contributed to the largest black middle class in history, that line is blurred, you see, and we can step on it and it's like the third rail of American race relations. When you step on it, you can be shocked by the reception you get as a black person. I think um, my daughter, um, when she was uh, when she went out to get basically like her first real job, she had been brought up in um, very diverse, um, you know, schools, uh, neighborhoods, um, our friends, you know, um, relations, you know, with our family, and. Um, when she she went to her first job, it was a, I would say, a deep white space because I think she told me it was a handful. Like she could count on her hand how many black people were there, um, and and you kind of she said she learned who they were fairly quickly, mm-hmm. and she was really shocked at the ignorance of the white people in her workplace um, from the little things of the hair. Um, from things as suntan, um, oh, you know, I, I, I want to get, um, you know, so-and-so's color and this and that and the other. I mean, they would make these statements, and she was like, Mom, I, I can't believe them. And I was like, yeah? Like, in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. But, you know, she's new to it. It was a shock, you know. Um, it, it was it was uh, really amazing for me to watch her going through this. I mean, now she has a little tougher skin, but she, because of being brought up in a multicultural, I guess, environment, um, was really shocked, you know, by it. And um, one of the things you do talk about is uh, Reverend Lowry's statement. If you're light, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're black, get back. And this is dealing with colorism and how it impacts African Americans and their relations to white space. Tell the audience uh, what that means, um, if you're light, you're a right brown, stick around, black, get back, in relation to white space? Well, I mean, basically, um, if we go back to slavery, and so much of this begins with slavery, we have to understand slavery on some level to really appreciate uh, current race relations. I think we cannot really understand race 
situations today without, with, without considering the impact of slavery itself. Because slavery as an institution established the black body at the bottom of the order, you see. You couldn't have been worse than a black person in the minds of so many white people of that day and time. And Justice, Justice Taney, Roger B. Taney probably said it best when he said, uh, uh, black people have no rights that white people are bound to respect. And he mm. said the Dred Scott decision in 1857, uh, before slaves were emancipated, but he was speaking about the place of black people in, a, in American society and in the American estimation, that kind of thing. And so as black people left the plantations and, and, and migrated, um, you know, to towns and cities uh, in the north, as I mentioned, uh, many people said keep on going, but their stigma followed them and preceded them, you see. And, of course, um, as you well appreciate, Joy, I mean, uh, so many of uh, the slave masters had their way with slave women. So this produced brown babies. And, um, and of course, you had divisions within the slave plantation between the mulattoes and the dark-complexioned black people, and the mulattoes uh, were marginally better off in terms of the way the larger society regarded them, you see. And um, uh, as I say in the book, as black people made their way, the um, the white people in these various towns wanted to contain them and oftentimes told them to keep on going, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where they settled, these places became the black space or became the, <clears throat> the ghetto, you see. And so many white people um, in these uh, areas uh, became um, socially invested in the lonely place of black people through this uh, principle of white over black. And this became institutionalized and passed on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And, um, and of course, with, uh, with the black community, it's never been a monolith, but there's a sense in which we had the one-drop rule, one drop of black blood and you're black, mm-hmm. which radically protected the white race, you see. And uh, <laughs> what we had then is that black people, no matter what shade they were, they were all treated as part of the black community, you see. But uh, at the same time, within the black community, we had social stratification, and people uh, assumed that they were better off, and oftentimes were better off because they could get some of the good jobs, that kind of thing. They built up capital, you know, and that became very, very, very important. In fact, the, um, the upper-class uh, uh, black community of the 1950s was consistently white complexion. They made up what they, what they called the, uh, the colortocracy, so to speak. And mm. a lot of the, the uh, black uh, schools, uh, universities, and what have you, to favor uh, these people. And so they made their way. And they, um, they became, of course, the colortocracy. Today, with the incorporation process and behind us, we can see that when that happened through affirmative action, set-asides, what have you, the, the, the corporations didn't, didn't care about skin shade or skin, skin, skin color, they said, at least ostensibly. And so what we had was a kind of integration of uh, black and white people moving, I mean, black and brown people, brown, black people. Moving up into the, yeah. And today in the corporations and in the neighborhoods, uh, there are fewer distinctions between uh, being, uh, you know, 
black or brown or light, at least administratively in these organizations. Now, socially, uh, these, uh, these issues still maintain sometimes. Now, you talk about this issue of gentrification. That's a really big thing on the market right now. I just had uh, Majora Carter on uh, the show um, the other day, and she talked about self-gentrification, about, you know, people in the community working to stay in the community and develop the community themselves for themselves uh, and, and so that they don't have to leave and that the, there's no brain drain. Um, do you think that it's possible for people to self-gentrificate uh, in, that, in, that defini- in terms of that definition, African-Americans to self-gentrificate in the ghetto? Yeah, I'd like to think that that is true. But at the same time, I, I found in my study that, uh, that, that, that white people have a special uh, 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 power and position, so to speak. Uh, they, they, and their skin, white skin, is, is capital, so to speak. And so uh, when white people move into a gentrifying area, they invest not only their, their money, you know, their resources that way, but they also invest their skin, you see. And that skin is capital. And so when the white people move into a ghetto area, it increases in value on the open market, so to speak. Meanwhile, black communities operate, I mean, solidly black communities operate uh, in a restricted housing market, so to speak. Whereas when white people move into uh, the ghetto, the ghetto becomes uh, an unrestricted housing market, meaning that uh, that the house can then uh, possibly be sold to anybody. In other words, it rises to the, the level of what the market will bear. But when you have race, when it's just one group of black people uh, in this community, it's a restricted housing market versus the unrestricted housing market. And one of the issues here is white skin as capital. And I deal with this in the book. There's a whole chapter on uh, gentrification and the ways in which this, this, this works, so to speak. So these are some of the findings of the book, uh, in White Space. But I get deep into the social organization of a gentrifying neighborhood in Philadelphia to, uh, to um, make sense of this, uh, this uh, 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 situation. Yeah, you were talking, right, I live right near Hazel um, uh, and uh, on Pine Street, and I saw complete gentrification on Pine Street. Uh, I used to live across the, there were like four or five buildings on the other side of the street, they were apartment buildings, and they were mostly, when I first moved in, they were mostly made up of uh, Africans, African Americans. There was a couple, one or two whites or something, but mostly it was Africans, African Americans. And I don't know if somebody bought the properties all across the whole block, and and they completely redid the whole block. They made these little doggy parks in between. And now, um, well, when they first started, it was it, it just did this like whitewash. That, that's the word I would come up with. It, it was whitewash. And and the rent of the, the people, the Africans and the other African Americans, they they had to move out. I knew some people that lived there, and they were like they raised the rents like crazy, and they could not stay. But now income or what came in were a white people. Um, can can this be a good thing? Can can gentrification be good at all, or is it all negative for people of color? Well, I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel very good when it happens to you, you know, kind of thing. When you have to move out because the insurance rates and the uh, taxes have gone up, you know, and mm-hmm. it, 
you were fine before, but now you have to deal with all this, uh, the newcomers and all. And uh, the newcomers, when they come, uh, you know, they, I mean, I mean, the white newcomers, they don't, you know, they kind of bet on, they kind of bargain on uh, the neighborhood changing and becoming more expensive, you know. And sometimes it becomes so expensive that black people can't move in anymore and becomes white. And then they, in the police services, I mean, the police pay more attention to the area, the bicycle racks come in. Starbucks might 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 look favorably about that place as a location. Uh, things improve, you see. And for the black people who are there, um, you know, our, our life is, uh, you know, maybe a little bit better. But this is a transitional period oftentimes because ultimately they have to, they have to deal with it. And some black people benefit because they sell their homes at three times the price that they could get when it was all black, you see. Mm. These are some uh, uh, benefits. But ultimately, economics plays, uh, plays a, big, a big role. And, um, and there are more uh, white, middle, and upper middle class buyers than there are blacks. And so this is one reason why the neighborhood then becomes uh, uh, whiter and whiter, so to speak. You have a chapter called The Gym, and I really enjoyed that because we had talked before about your other book called The Cosmopolitan Canopy. And I said to you right before we started, I said, The Gym seems to me like a cosmopolitan canopy. Can you explain to the audience what that means um, and a little bit about your observations at The Gym? Sure, sure. Well, the concept of the canopy, the cosmopolitan canopy, is a notion that I, I introduced in my previous book, and I recommend that the readers, that the listeners, uh, check that book out, the Cosmopolitan Canopy. And what the um, the the, uh, the finding was is that in in any city, especially Philadelphia, you have a number of what I call cosmopolitan canopies, and these are islands of racial civility located in a sea of segregated living. Uh, we we uh, have a we still have a very segregated society. Philadelphia is the sixth most segregated city in the country, um, but there are these spaces where all kinds of people come together and act real nice across racial lines. And the Reading Terminal Market is one of these places. Um, Red Now Square is one of these places. <clears throat> certain Starbucks, certain restaurants, and on a good day, even Center City with the synergistic effect of all these canopies working together becomes a really comfortable place for all different kinds of people, if you will. But as I say in the book, um, the canopy has fault lines. And one of the most important fault lines is the end moment or the ways of, or the times when um, when somebody draws the color line, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's an ethnocentric uh, person who does that. But when the color line is drawn, then the canopy can be rented, so to speak, and there can, and there can be problems and issues. And the, the color line is very interesting in the canopy. In the gym, uh, people uh, do get along. I mean, to go to the gym and to, uh, you know, uh, and you got to pay at least 50 bucks a month, maybe more, uh, to go to a good gym. And in this gym, that was about the price. And so this tended to draw in middle-class people regardless of what color they were. And so that that's important. But uh, on the edge of the gym, you had the uh, the basketball court, which I found very interesting because some of the brothers who play basketball, they want a good game, so they bring in their friends from the hood sometimes, you know, and they uh, they, they give them uh, cards, that kind of thing. And the brothers will come in uh, sometimes on a Saturday, 
they come from the hood and then they have all the paraphernalia with the pants below the butt and uh, the look and the stare and all that. And so it's interesting how your group of basketball players at the at the at the at the hoops. I mean, how they attract the interest of the other uh, participants who sometimes gawk and look, and they're uh, <laughs> they can see that these brothers who are coming in to play basketball are not like the middle class brothers who and sisters who are normally there, and right. they. And they're very curious. I mean, some of them are upset, but most of them are just just kind of curious, and they kind of look and watch. And you know, and the, and the brothers, they they look uh, directly at the women. They 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 uh, wear the pants with the butt. They they don't uh, subscribe to all these niceties that the middle class uh, brothers do and sisters sometimes. And so that's a very interesting thing. But the canopy as a space is a space with all kinds of people you know, are welcome, so to speak, and, and people in the canopy are typically on good behavior. But this good behavior, so to speak, is really kind of a veneer. And, um, and if you dig deep, you can, you can find the color line, and sometimes that can be quite, uh, quite disturbing. And uh, as I say, it's like a, like a third rail sometimes of American race relations, and then there's a shock. And somebody gets the gets the end moment, so to speak. But um, as I said in my book, anybody who's different, anybody who's marginalized, can get this end moment. And they don't always call it that, but it's a moment of acute race, <clears throat> acute disrespect, based on one's particularity. And black people mm-hmm. get it because the because of the uh, the hood being so so close to so many of these canopies, so to speak, and people associating black people in the canopy with the hood and some of these people who are there uh, in the canopy may not be from the hood, uh, you know, but people just see black skin and their black skin becomes kind of a master status that uh, gives them that, uh, that identity. See, um, but this is all laid out in my book, the cosmopolitan canopy. And to some degree in the new book, black and white space. You know, Carrie, that, chapter is a really interesting I, I i actually after reading that chapter i actually called my mom and i because i was just so intense this is a chapter where you devote to this one particular individual um and i would say the backflips and the and the, all the different things he had to do to conform or feel i guess i don't know equal desired uh, comfortable in the white space um learning, you know, reading books and changing his watch and all these things, and yet he had different trauma going on when he, when he came back to the black space. Uh, another thing that you talked about is sometimes people, I guess, riling against the system, and they may not be from the ghetto, but they'll dress and act like they are. Um, one, to be accepted in the ghetto, maybe by their fellow black um, uh, people, but also to kind of rile against the white space, like kind of mm-hmm. shake it up. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit and, and what that means? Now we see on TV and songs that that image of the quote-unquote ghetto is selling and people are making money out of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. Well, you probably know about the wire, you know, kind of thing. And, mm, oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of people uh, – love that program and some people don't like it so much you know years ago the atlantic monthly they uh, asked me to uh, to uh, to comment about the wire 
And at the time, I said, well, I've never seen The Wire. And the guy said, but, but, but you're lying. Yeah, I said, you never watched The Wire? I said, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And he said, he said, well, would you watch it? And then let me interview you. And so I, I got some back orders of the uh, episodes, and I got into it. I got quite intrigued, really, when I got into it. And I watched it, watched it, watched it. And then about six months later, whatever, he came back and said, well, what'd you think? What'd you think? I said, well, it's a very gripping program and it's very engaging, you know. And uh, I liked it, uh, you know. But, you know, they left one thing out. He said, what's that? I said, they left out the decent people. <laughs> you mm. know, my field work, and I've been all in the hood, and you code of the street. If you read that, you read all about the issues and all of this. I've been going into all kinds of spaces and really getting to know a lot of different kinds of people in the hood. And what I've come to see is that most people in the hood are decent and trying to be decent, you know, like, like Little House on the Prairie, but only in the city, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are just a, a tremendous number of decent families and decent people, you know. But the wider society doesn't always appreciate that, you see. And I told this thing, I said, well, you know, uh, it, it's an interesting program. I, I liked it. But they left one thing out, the decent people, you see. And, and see, that's the thing, the, the, the street element, uh, the crime, the violence, the cells, you know. And um, the little house on the prairie image of black people doesn't sell because a lot of white folks don't even know this image, if you know what I mean. This is hidden, made invisible by the issues that we uh, ascribe, you know, to the, to the streets and to the ghetto from the drugs and the crime and this and that. I mean, this uh, obscures the decent people, if you know what I mean. And uh, society seems to be really interested in this uh, mayhem and the killing and the and the code and all that. Denzel Washington, you may recall, uh, got an Oscar not long ago. Oh, uh, God, yes. For, not, for his... not his brilliant work. No, got. right? I mean, so many day. other things that he did. I mean... Malcolm X was like a masterpiece. Uh, so many other films that he did, um, and, and he didn't win an Oscar, and then he wins an Oscar for that. And then also Halle Berry, she won an Oscar for uh, Monsters Ball, which I was like, oh, what happened to her Darcy Dandridge film? What happened to so many other things? So, you know, people are, I mean, are, like you're saying, are fascinated and, and think that is who we are, and but we're not a monolith. And um, I think, uh, you know, now with this, um, people are boycotting and banning books of, you know, critical race theory or African-American history being taught in schools. So how can you dispel these myths if, if they won't let in the truth? Absolutely. That's a great question. Well, I mean, basically in the book, I talk about the, the iconic ghetto, you know, and this is the, the image that <clears throat> is uh, in the minds of a lot of a lot of people, the iconic ghetto. And of course, this uh, iconic ghetto is uh, can be traced right to right to slavery. And the iconic ghetto, and the point is that the that the ghetto, so to speak, is no longer simply uh, a physical space. It's become an icon, an image, a symbol. And this operates um, in, in, in on on race relations. It, it hovers over 
race relations, relations between blacks and whites who don't know each other, and basically uh, the white community and others who are middle class or what have you oftentimes relegate black people to the iconic ghetto because that iconic ghetto is simply not the physical ghetto anymore, but it's uh, it's a great source of stereotype and prejudice and discrimination, and a lot of people buy into that. And so I think this this explains uh, why Denzel Washington got uh, the Oscar for the um, Training Day, and uh, and other people get uh, you know low rated for for their roles as well, um, uh, and uh, paid attention to when they exhibit or or connect with the iconic ghetto, which is all about the stereotypes of the of the um, the bad black, uh, the big black and scary male, that kind of thing, or the or the welfare queen. And these are big stereotypes in American society, and a lot of people buy into that when you think about black Americans. You see, and this is uh, this is uh, relevant to uh, the discussion about Denzel and um, and Halle Berry. Well, I thank you so much, you know, for coming on. We we run out of time. We could continue to talk for another hour or two. But thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you for writing the book. I think it will be helpful. And I think that uh, both sides of the color line need to read it. it it's not just for black people. I think um, it's, it's for everybody to, to read and understand the, the context in which things happen and how they impact both parties, you know, black and white or uh, in, in society. So thank you so much for writing your book. I'm going to give away some copies of your book um, to, to the audience. Great. Well, Black and White Space was just a, a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I I enjoyed doing it, and I learned a lot. Um, and the findings, I think, uh, have implications for how we how we live our lives. And if more people were edified by points I make in the book, I, I, I think we'd be better off as a society. So thank you for having me on. Thank you again for taking the time. Um, you can go back to sleep and you can eat your waffles or pancakes <laughs> or whatever you do on your Saturday mornings and, and, and relax if possible. Um, thank you again, uh, Doctor, for coming on the show. Uh, you have a great weekend, okay? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or four. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 